This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast, and I am your host for this week, Paul J. Slee. I'm filling in for the mysterious Mike Rappin. I believe he's on location or doing some research in the Savage Land. Uh, that's why he's not on the show, so wish him the best. Hope he comes back safely. I'm not alone, however. I'm joined by two of my favorite people to talk about comic book comic books with, two of my comic book friends, my super friends, if you will, uh, Tia Vasilio. Hello. And Kara Shamborski. Hey. Uh, how are you both doing? I'm legally obligated to ask you how comics <laughs> been and how you're doing. So I'll start with you, Kara. How have you been? Ooh, um, I have been enjoying margaritas. Is it, is, <laughs> it was the end of the school year on Friday, and one it was like once the moment when all the children left the building hit, all the adults just kind of looked around and we were like, the alcohol? <laughs> the alcohol. <laughs> so that became my entire weekend up until this point. Sorry, Mom and Dad, I ate carbs. I'm good. I drank water. And... Um, so, but it, it but it, it's um, it was an interesting experience because I found out that I found out over the last few days between having inebriated conversations with people and uh, leaving out like extra trades in the lounge for people to take if they want that so many of my colleagues love comics, but like in a I read them 10 years ago. I like the idea of them. I know a lot about them through this show. I used to be mm-hmm. super into manga. And it's just like they're coming out of the woodwork. It's like like once they know <laughs> that someone is an out and proud nerd, they're like, oh, let me tell you my dark secrets. I'm like, dude, I'm going to give you a Batman comic. Like, If you like the thing, why don't you read the thing? I got in an argument with someone about Robert Pattinson as Batman because they were saying it was a bad idea. And I'm like, no, you're objectively wrong. (laughs) That person is objectively wrong and like should not be allowed to have opinions about Batman. (laughs) That's the test. That's a litmus test. If you can't accept Robert Pattinson as Batman, then all of your Batman opinions are invalid. The end. I like yeah, it. I like I, it too. I, I agree with that, yeah. Feel free yeah. to send hate mail to uh <laughs> podcast at destroythesive.org. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that that's that's my current status. Yes, thank you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, good, good. Uh have you read anything recently you want to uh, enlighten us about? Oh, yes. I so a few, maybe like a month or two ago, Mike um had me on a, a, I think it was like a book versus book where he was like, you're going to read Fence Volume 1. And I was like, okay. And I loved it. So mm-hmm. my library just got Fence Volume 2 and I was like third in the queue for reservations. And so it came in and I tore through that as soon as I got it. And I love it so much. So the premise of Fence is it's it's in a Western style comic that's really heavily influenced by sports manga. And if you've ever read a sports manga, you know that it's all like this overblown interpersonal drama and competition and like, oh, they're my rival and everything is like really intense close ups and overblown action. So this is a story about fencing through the lens of this like scruffy outsider kid who's like secretly the bastard child of an Olympian fencer who's never acknowledged him. And this kid's got a chip on his shoulder about being a great fencer too. So he gets into this like elite boys academy on scholarship because they've got a great fencing program. And this kid who's like his age, but keeps like outranking him as bested him. And so he's like really intent on making this kid his rival. And also maybe there's a nebulous plan of getting his dad's attention or something, but it's just... So the second volume is really all about him, like, gaining his confidence 
as a fencer at this academy and they're like in the tryouts to see who's going to make the team and he has this like really intense back and forth with this with this kid who's his who he's like you're my rival you're my rival and the kid's like you're so insignificant i don't even notice you but also they're roommates so (laughs) but like aside (laughs) from all this like all the other uh, members of the team have like distinct personalities and again if you've read sports manga or like shonen manga of certain types, like you'll notice these character types right away and you know what they're inspired by. And it's just like seeing all these personalities interplay with one another. And mm-hmm. I just, I, and like the art is super cute. So I just, I can't wait for the next volume to hit my library so I can read more. <laughs> that sounds fascinating. I know people talk about the sports manga or cooking manga and it always sounds so appealing. I just know that if I go down that rabbit hole, there's no bottom to it, right? <laughs> just, there's a, that well is never ending. It's really true though. <laughs> one of these days, mm-hmm. one of these days I'll get to it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Tia, what about you? How have you been and uh, what have you been reading? I've been good. Um, really, really, really busy. And um, yeah, so that does cut into reading, but I... I recently was putting together a little comics care package to send to someone. And I was like, well, I need to read the things first before I send them to him. So I know kind of like what, just to refresh my own memory, because some of these books, it's been a while since I read them. And also, I hate it when you say you're going to send someone comics and then you send them basically like, reading assignments about yourself you know what i mean like i think if you're gonna do something nice for someone and send them comics that you you really want to pick stuff that they're gonna like so yeah so i kind of like dug deep into the library of my comics to be like what does what does this person want you know Mm -hmm. because i'm thoughtful like that (laughs) so (laughs) you are I am. Yeah. So I kind of took a little trip down memory lane um, and read some of my old favorites, which um, are Fraction and Oz Hawkeye, uh, Mm -hmm. Dreads and King's Mr. Miracle, and um, the Brubaker Winter Soldier, where he um, has to like hunt down the sleeper uh, Winter Soldier that are being reactivated by Dr. Doom and then like <laughs> one of them kidnaps Natasha and she and like wipes her memory and he has to fight her in the in the ballet and it's very heartbreaking and I love it. <laughs> Wait, they both are in a ballet and they're fighting while dancing? She like gets her memory is all scrambled and so she thinks that she is because you know that's like the story where um the like her memories of the red room are like conflated with actually being like a ballerina and but but i think that like she wasn't really a ballerina but she was it's always all been very like confusing to me but anyway in this run of the winter soldier she where her memories get all scrambled she actually like goes and joins a ballet so she's like doing a ballet performance and everyone's like so excited that they have this ballerina uh, this legendary ballerina on their stage and then um and then bucky shows up to like ostensibly rescue her but it t- in her mind he's the enemy so they have a fight and she's wearing a tutu and she's kicking his ass and it's amazing ah! it's like my favorite scene in m- most comics like it's up there in my top five and um, and he's like, oh God, she really holds back when we spar. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. Natasha kicking Bucky's ass while wearing a tutu is amazing. 
does sound amazing. I want to read that. Well, I sent it to my friend in LA, but... Uh... Text me the title. I'll get it from the library. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I'm a resourceful adult. I can figure it out. Yeah. And then, um, the, you know, the Mr. Miracle is nominated for all of the Eisners. And I feel like... That's a. I feel like that's a good book to give someone who's like, I actually don't know anything about comics because you don't like I don't read any DC comics. And I was able to just jump right into that one without really knowing anything about the new gods or anything about DC characters, um, even though those are like, you know, established DC uh, properties. I think that uh, Tom King and Mitch Drives did a really good job making it accessible. You could just pick it up and read it. You don't have to necessarily know anything about it, except like if you have a basic concept of how comic book superheroes work, then you'll be fine, you know? I don't know. That's that's one of those books where it's like, I know I'll read it eventually because I really do like The New Gods, but I just haven't done that yet. I can't believe you have not read this, Kara. I just, I, I've been watching a lot of television. <laughs> I know, but it's like, I know how much you love Barda. And she is everything. Okay. The like, this is the thesis of this book is like, Barda is everything. Okay. I'm going to, as soon as we're done recording today, I'm going to check my library catalog and see if they have this. I mean, it's so, oh my, like, it just, it's a love story, is what it is, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, her relationship with Scott Free is so there's moments in this book where they have these interactions and you're just like this could only have been written by someone who like understands the difference between objectifying someone that you're in love with and genuinely like having a, a life with someone that you're in love with Oh, that's a I think that's a a nuance that isn't often discussed. But now that you've described it, I'm like, yes. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and and the parts of the book where there's like the war between the new gods and the um, and like apocalypse and all of that. I mean, there's like there's definitely ridiculous comic book stuff in there. But then the way that Scott and Barta navigate it is just so real and relatable and gives you all the feelings on that mushy note paul how are you how have the comics been for you paul well um as i discussed on the last episode i am embarrassingly behind on my uh, sort of monthly comics i just have stacks of comics piling all piling up all over my house um the problem is I have a uh, table in the dining room where I have all my comics like to sit and read. I'm also doing a puzzle on the same table. So when I sit down to read comics, I just get distracted by doing this puzzle that's all DC characters. So it's like I have to pick and choose my uh, relaxation activity. Should I do a puzzle or should I read comics? So it's a tough choice. Um, that said, I did spend some time this weekend reading some books, catching up on some series. Um, I read the... Uh, Last two issues of Paper Girls, issues 28 and 29, uh, I guess I should say the penultimate issues of Paper Girls, since issue 30 will be the last I- issue. And um, this, of Is course, Brian K- Yeah, yeah. Oh, ben- okay. It, number 30. And here's the thing. 
I feel like I finally figured out what the, what it's about. Like, I think I finally like <laughs> understand the book now this far into it. Um, I've loved the series from the beginning. I think uh, Brian K. Vaughn and Cliff Chang and uh, especially Matt Wilson on colors, the whole team there, it just feels like such a unique book visually and in terms of storytelling. I truly don't know what's going to happen issue to issue. Um, and yet there's something to it that keeps me going. Like I, you know, I joke about finally making sense, but it is confusing the way they use time travel, but there's emotional beats in the story that really work for me. And like issue 29 ends in such a way I got really emotional and I'm like, I have a connection to these characters. I didn't realize because I was so focused on understanding the mechanics of the narrative of how time travel works in this world. But so uh, when I reached the end of issue 29, I thought I'm going to be a mess at the end of issue 30 if it ends the way I think it's going to. Hopefully they can surprise me again and do something different. But it's just a really nice reminder of just how good that book is. Also, issue 28 does something really interesting with the letters column, which is something I usually skip since if you've read Paper Girls in, in uh, floppies, you know that the letters column is sort of like made up, like it's not actual letters. You know, it's kind of like I would treat it as kind of like a meta commentary or a joke, so I don't read it. But something happened in issue 28 where they use the letter columns to advance the narrative in a way. And I'm like, do I have to go back and reread this whole series with the letter columns now? Like maybe <laughs> that's my problem was I was skipping that and that would have explained everything, but I don't know. I feel like that is a book I will have to go back and reread at some point once it's all said and done. So, um, I also read the last few issues of criminal including criminal number five. That's uh, Brubaker and Phillips, of course. And uh, I just love this series. I really like this current volume of it where they're, they're at a point where they can jump around in the criminal universe, so to speak. And um, issue five starts a new story arc where uh, you it's told from the point of view of a private investigator. So I like Brubaker writing that type of style. I like detective novels and detective fiction like that. Um, and he's doing a real nice hard-boiled detective story there. Uh, but the guy, it ties into the death of Teague Lawless, who's a character from the first criminal story uh, way like 10 years ago. And they've always talked about how Teague died, but they never explained exactly what happened. I feel like this story is going to be finally going to see that reveal. And Brubaker said it's the longest criminal story he's ever written. So I'm on board for the whole thing. I just, something about this series, it's very simple. And I think I like that. I like hard-boiled criminal crime and detective fiction. I think Brubaker and Phillips are just nailing it with this current iteration of this book. So it's good, great, great stuff. Cool. Um, so that's what we've been reading. Uh, of course, there's always new comics to read, much to my chagrin. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, Kara, uh, what are you excited for this week that's coming out on June 12th already? I have so many thoughts, Paul. Thank you for asking. <laughs> so, first of all, uh, I didn't realize this, but Archie Comics is reviving Jughead's Time Police, which is one of my favorite <laughs> weird things that they've done of all time. So... Like, just seeing that title, I was like, I don't even need to read further. I already know I'm reading this. So the the concept of, of Jughead's Time Police, um, as it has existed prior to this, this new series, is it's like a thousand years from now, mm-hmm. and Jughead is there, and he's a time cop who works with... Um, this girl named January McAndrews, who's like Archie's like way like great, 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 great granddaughter or whatever, like how many however many greats you get to get there. So it's sure. basically like an excuse for Jughead and like a girl version of Archie to run around like throughout time. So maybe like maybe like an off brand Doctor Who, but Jughead is the doctor kind of situation. 
So, like, it was inevitable that they were going to bring that back at some point, but now they are, and I'm hyped. Yeah, I, I, I was... I saw this on my list of what was coming out, and I'm like, I'm going to have to buy that, right? Because just the name alone sells it. And I had no idea it was a previous thing that already existed. So oh, yeah. yeah, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm in. Yeah, it's 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 got a history. I think they started it in the 80s, <laughs> definitely the 90s, <laughs> very 90s. Um, then I saw I saw a title that like le- leapt out at me on the list of things that were coming out this mm-hmm. week because I got mad at it, and so it's it's actually a book, but it's on the like comics. I guess it's in previews. And it's C-3PO does not like sand. And I guess it's a children's book about like C-3PO going through tattooing and like complaining about sand. But I'm like, okay, if you're even a passing Star Wars fan and you spend any time on the internet whatsoever, you're aware that it's Anakin who doesn't like sand. Okay, but but who who made 3PO? Oh, oh, oh my God. I did not. My mind's blown right now. I did not make that connection. Of course, C-3PO doesn't like sand. Also, like, you know, it gets in your gears. And like, I, you know, I mean, who could blame him? But yeah, no, that makes perfect sense to me. Oh, my God. I I said, thank you. I did not make that connection. Um, The other title, (laughs) the other title I quickly wanted to shout out is being intrigued by is Red Sonia Birth of the She-Devil number one and I just I'm not the most prolific reader of Red Sonia books but I just love the concept of her and I was really into the run that Gail Simone did a few years ago so every time I I see like a new beginning to a Red Sonia miniseries I'm like well that's my jumping on point so this one's kind of like uh it seems to be not quite an origin story, but like you like, let's go back in time. So you don't need to know what we've currently been doing with her as a character. And I always I always appreciate prequel esque side stories like that that make it easy for people who aren't necessarily going to keep track of what's happening to be able to enjoy a story about a character that they like. Yeah. Yeah. Especially a character that there's always Red Sonia comics coming out. I feel like that's a character I always see on the list, always see on the stands, but I don't know very much about. So clearly there's a market for it. So Always. Yeah. Interesting. Basically, she's like the girl answer to Conan the Barbarian. Right. I have I have the original, I have her original Mar- Marvel run somewhere tucked away in my parents' house that I still haven't read. So maybe I'll do that when I go visit them this summer. Yeah. One of these days I'll, again, add it to the ever-growing list of things I'll get to eventually. So, yeah. Someday. Someday we'll read all the comics we want to read. All the comics. Uh, Atia, what about you? What are you excited for this week? Well, um, as my what I read this week section may suggest, I'm just like not really doing a good job with um, like monthly ongoing single issues lately. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So um, things coming out in trade paperback, I'm like, yes, because I just I don't know. I just want to sit down and binge on stuff if when I have time to read. I um, my brain like everything else in my life is too all over the place and it makes it makes me want to just like focus mm-hmm. when I read comics, I guess. I don't want to have to like jump around in all these m- monthly issues. So I rem- ages ago, I read the first issue of Maxwell's Demons, uh, which is a beautiful vault comics book and the trade paperbacks finally coming out. And I'm like, okay, cool. Now I can catch up on that. And uh, I actually, I think the last time I was on this show, I said, my what am I excited for? Mm-hmm. Book was uh, Middle West trade paperback. So apparently, I'm all about like 
vaguely traumatic dad issue like child adventurer stories that are kind of Aww. like sci-fi-ish that's what i'm all about right <laughs> I now i mean that's a niche that's a niche <laughs> taste but yeah. yeah is there something you're not telling us you know yeah not not telling us something about your childhood tia are you secretly like from another planet or like, <laughs> probably is this like a reverse peter quill situation like aliens dropped you here when you were a kid you know that would explain so much well yeah and also thanks for reminding me about uh maxwell's demons because i also read the first issue a while back it's one of those things again i'd always like oh, i'll be sure to get catch up on that so now i know the trade's coming out so it's no excuses anymore so yeah yeah also last weekend i um went through my storage unit and like realized how many boxes of single issues i have and it just was like a lot it was like it was so much and um my mom was helping me and she was like um, I had like a, a box of um, bags and boards and she was helping me put stuff in bags and boards. And she was she was just like, oh, look, another <laughs> box of Wicked and Divine single issues. Yeah. Literally, how many of these do you have? So it made me realize that trade paperbacks are like that. That's my <laughs> new thing now. Trade paperbacks. <laughs> No more single issues. Wiktiv is ending. My this, the, my long nightmare of single issues can finally come to an end. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, um, I don't know if I've reached that point. I keep telling myself the same thing, but uh, nope. Still, still getting long boxes full of shit in my in my room. So we'll see. <laughs> um, as for me, I um, was looking at my list of stuff coming out. It's very short. And I know Mike already um, chastised me for continuing to pick Immortal Hulk, so I'm not picking Immortal Hulk number 19. I'm not excited about that book coming out, even though it's my favorite comic. Instead, I'm going to pick Glow number two uh, from IDW. This is by Teeny Howard, art by Hannah Templer, and colors by Rebecca Nalty. Um, it feels like the first issue of this came out a long time ago, so I was kind of surprised this is just issue two coming out. But uh, this is, of course, the adaptation of the hit Netflix television show based on the 80s television show Gorgeous Ladies of Wrestling. Um, and I really liked the first issue of this. I feel like uh, Teeny Howard, who is, of course, a noted fan of professional wrestling, uh, clearly loves that show and the world of the show and the, the characters in it, because in that first issue, she really captures the tone of the show, although it making it a little bit more sort of... Uh, Saturday morning cartoony in an interesting way. Um, but really knowing the, the voices of the characters, and I think uh, Hannah Templer's artwork does a nice job of looking like the characters without being too sort of photorealistic. Again, it, it vibes with me like an 80s cartoon version of the show, which is interesting because the the thing that got me into watching professional wrestling as a very young Hulkamaniac was Hulk Hogan's rock and wrestling cartoon that was on when I was a very young boy. So like my, I always connect cartoons on Saturday morning with wrestling because there'd be Saturday morning cartoons and then at a certain time they would switch and show wrestling afterwards, right? So like in my mind they're always connected. So in some sense, having a comic that looks like a cartoon version of a television wrestling show makes complete sense to me. So yeah, anyway, I'm excited for that book. So yeah, that's what we have coming out this week. Um... And then we're going to take a quick break and come back for our topic. And this week, we're talking about the death of the author or how, or if we should, separate a work of art from its creator.
this week's topic is one I think is very interesting and important, and I'm very excited to talk about uh, talk about it with Kara and Tia here today. And uh, uh, the bigger question is the distinction between an artist or a creator and the work that they create. And uh, I think the framework for this, or the way we're going to talk about it, is focusing on the idea of uh, questionable content in comics. You know, I think someone had raised a question of how do we uh, confront content in Golden or Silver Age comics that it looks racist, misogynistic, or homophobic uh, in any way, how do we as readers uh, confront that? Should we dismiss the work entirely, or should we try to put it in its context? And of course, the larger question is, comics or art in general, how can we uh, mitigate that difference between the artist's intent and our enjoyment of the art? So um, I'm going to leave it at that and maybe open up the floor to maybe your initial thoughts on that topic. Well, <laughs> take it away, Tia. Um, I think that there's a lot of things that people need to keep in mind when they are asking themselves these questions. And um, the most important one is that, you know, it's it's perfectly valid to critique things very harshly that you also acknowledge you enjoy on some other level like you're allowed to have those things happen simultaneously and just because you are critiquing something doesn't necessarily mean that you are criticizing people who like it I mean it could mean that but you're allowed to have both of those things be true at the same time yeah yeah an important thing to remember just putting that us. out there up up top. I think yeah. well that I think that's some somewhere where the where the issue arises for me, where it is acknowledging something acknowledging content in a comic that I find questionable or offensive while at the same time still enjoying the, it as a work of art. So there's a sense of maybe guilt in that that regard where it's like, well, yes, I, I know this thing is offensive in some way, but there's other aspects of it that I find appealing or enjoyable. So I, I something I, I think that that is really central to that that tension is how does your engagement with that comic or artwork benefit the people who contributed the things to it that are a problem right because there are various, I think, degrees of that. If it's a Silver Age comic, um, <laughs> likely your enjoyment of it is not directly benefiting the people who made it. Although there is an argument to be made that it, that you're reifying these, uh, I don't know, structures in comics that put those that that make somehow make those books seem more important when in fact mm-hmm. you know the the way that they have become important is kind of hinged on these pro- problems that th- anyway like you know but then there's a i think a more immediate sense of like this person is involved in comics gate and so maybe don't buy their work <laughs> R- right right well, so I think there, there's a, two things there. So maybe I want to stick with the Silver Age discussion for now, and then we can kind of talk about the other one uh, shortly. But, you know, talking about content like racist content in Silver Age comics, the first example I think of is in um, uh, Green Lantern comics, Hal Jordan had an assistant that was affectionately, not, well, not affectionately, like called um, Pie Face because he was um, uh, Inuit, you know, Native American. And uh, that was a slur term that was used 
blatantly in the comic. Or you look at Will Eisner's The Spirit, which had a you know a character named Ebony White, who is a baldly racist caricature mm-hmm. in the comic, right? And it's I think it's tempting to kind of say those comics are products of their time where that was more socially acceptable, but that sort of way of explaining it, that explains it in a way that dismisses the inherent racism of those examples. That makes sense? Yeah. So I think for me, in order to mitigate that, I kind of think of those things, it's important to recognize as much as I might enjoy reading those comics, I recognize the content that is racist and say, instead of dismissing it as of its time, using that as an example and saying, well, this comic as a cultural or historical document is an example of how systemic racism, um, manifested itself in popular culture, right? And I think that you can also take that a step further and acknowledge your own racism or your own privilege, your own racial Mm -hmm. privilege, and say, you know, I'm in a position where I could... I can make that distinction. I can put these, I can say, hey, yeah, this is racist. And then I could put it aside and enjoy the comic. There are people who cannot do that. Exactly. And I think that a lot of the canon, quote unquote, canon of comics is is based on the assumption that we can all just say, oh, yeah, that is kind of racist, but I'm going to still put it aside and enjoy this. And it doesn't really acknowledge the fact that there are people who cannot do that, who should not have to do that, and um, in in fact should invalidate the idea that these are must-read canonical comic books, but in fact there are multiple different canons of comics that are equally as important and valid, and we should be doing our best to engage with all of them equally if we are going to claim any sort of like um, status as a comics person. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Yes. And Tia, I want to thank you personally, because I know we've had this discussion in the past and my idea of there being a comic book canon has changed and evolved over the years. I don't and I think it's because of your your thoughts on this they've shared on the show. Oh, wonderful. Well, I'm glad that I could be helpful because, you know, like my whole thing is like burn down the canon. But Mm -hmm. really, really what that means (laughs) is just like you should not be expected to acknowledge the primacy of something that devalues you as a human being or that or that doesn't recognize your humanity and it's unfair to ask a group of people to take on a whole lot of intellectual and emotional labor to work out these um to kind of work around that in order to engage with something when like we're people who have the privilege of putting those issues aside are not willing to do that same work to also like look at other works that are being created outside of those, um, mm-hmm. those structures. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was a lot of academic <laughs> no, words. No, that- well, so Tia, cor- correct me if what I'm interpreting is wrong, but basically everything that you just explained is only making me think of Alan Moore's Watchmen which was oh, right. it's always it's always on like the top of everyone's like this is the comic you have to read and i read it when i was um a teenager and like trying really hard to be like a like a perfect comics fan just like obviously no such thing but you know when you're younger you're just like i want to fit in i want to know all the things so i read watchmen and like every and i just like it's it's fine but so much of that book made me feel so uncomfortable and 
like as I got older and heard more people who tended to be like middle-aged white dudes being like this book is everything and I reread it every year and I always notice something different like it is a beautifully structured book but so much of the content I'm just like this is gross you know and it's like do you associate it with Alan Moore as a human being you know what I mean it's like does that mean that you hate everything Alan Moore has ever written it's like it's very um it's really easy to just kind of be like, well, I hate Alan Moore. No, I, th- I think it's more like, I'm like, oh, this is gross. Like, I, I, re- I reserve indiscriminate hatred for Grant Morrison's work. But like, <laughs> yes, good, I, same. <laughs> Sorry, fine. Paul. I get it. <laughs> but, but, you know, it's, it, I, for, for me being uncomfortable with a creator's work, that is more of a a recent thing for me just because being aware of creators is a relatively recent thing for me. Like when I was getting into comic books in high school and college, I was focused on the characters and not like aside from Gail Simone, like couldn't have picked out a creator from a lineup because I just, that wasn't important to me. And as I got like deeper into comics and started learning about different publishers and realizing that creators work for multiple publishers and realizing that if I liked the way a piece of art looked or oh, the way dialogue was written that I could follow that creator. Then I got more of a sense of awareness. And that's when I started to, um, I guess, feel a little betrayed if a creator wasn't everything I wanted them to be. And I guess a perfect example of that is Rat Queens, mm-hmm. which was like so important to me as a book when I was reading it. And then it's like, well, actually one of the dudes on it is kind of a dick and i'm like oh now i can't buy your shit anymore i do not want to financially support you and that was i think my first real experience with the kind of like nope this creator's on my personal blacklist yeah it's really hard because i on one hand i very firmly believe in the death of the author and the end that like what's in the work is in the work and like you know authorial intent and all of that sort of thing is like kind of peripheral to my engagement with the work and all of that, which you would think would extend to this kind of like, but the creator is a personally a a shithead or whatever. (laughs) But I, but you know, like when it comes down to it, I I don't want to financially support people who are shitheads and I don't want to contribute to their work being meaningful in the space. And I, you know, it's weird because like, there's a lot more opportunities for to find out that these creators are horrible people because of social mm-hmm. media. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Um, but I just, you know, it's, it's while I intellectually and academically feel like it's important to separate an artist from their work uh, in order to, you know, analyze the work and critique it and kind of contextualize it and understand its place in the world at the same time just on a personal level like i am never buying a book that ethan van skyver draws for example right you know it's yeah. just yeah yeah uh, so do you do you want to take a second maybe to kind of uh, explain that concept of death of the author because maybe not a lot of our listeners maybe are familiar with that term i don't i yeah. don't know that term so, like, if you want to read Roland Barthes, who is a French um, intellectual in the 20th century, uh, you totally can. <laughs> and Godspeed. <Good> <laughs> yeah. But 
to like the Cliff Notes version of Death of the Author is basically just the idea that, um, you know, the authorial intent is not the be all and end all for understanding a work and that the way that like the audience is engaging with it, like if you see something in the work, then that is a valid a framework for interpretation because like what's in the work is what is there and you can't necessarily know like is this is the author like assuming a character for artistic like integrity or are they putting their own voice into here like the, basically that the author's uh, as a the author as a person is and their intent that's just one way to understand the work it's not the way to mm-hmm. understand work mm-hmm. would you say that's a fair yeah. summary oh absolutely and i think you know that term death of the author so i think the bart essay came out in um like the mid 60s like 1964 maybe and in that i think since then yeah. that's become a popular way for people to understand art especially this when you come to issues like this where it's how do we separate art from an artist and you know bart's um suggestion is that the the artwork stands separate from the artist and your engagement with the artwork is as valid as the creation of it. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Okay. And, you know, if you really want to get into like post-structuralism and all of that, like you, this is a this is a philosophical rabbit hole that you could just toboggan down and have a great sure, time sure. with. But um, I, I actually I, I always like to remember that like Barth himself was kind of like a horrible shithead in a lot of ways. Like um, I was reading recently about how he and Derrida and all of those French intellectuals were trying to have um, age of consent laws revoked in France because one of their buddies was like fucking teenagers. Oh. And um, so they decided to get on a like intellectual moral high horse about it. And I'm just oh, like, no. no. So like I'm also so like separating the art from the artist, like <laughs> even extends to to Bart right, himself. Right. Oh, believe me. <laughs> believe me. As someone with a master's degree in philosophy, there's a lot of uh, having to justify or explain away, uh, you know, yeah. phil- philosophers' personal lives from their work. So, yeah, I'm well aware of that. Philosophers <laughs> and artists and writers, like, don't fuck them. Just don't. <laughs> don't fuck with them and don't fuck them. Right. No. <laughs> no. But... Um, Anyway, so yeah, so it's like, on the one hand, there's this entire intellectual framework for separating the art from the artist in in Western critical theory. But then on the other hand, there's also like, as Kara says, I don't want to give these dudes any money. Well, yeah, yeah. And I don't want to contribute to make to the to the canonical like weightiness of their work sometimes, even if they're like like in the case of you know Silver Age work where the creators are not financially benefiting mm-hmm. anymore. You know, it's it's interesting because as I'm thinking about this topic, especially in that terms of separating the art from the artist, I think comics feel unique as an art form because it's for at least for me as a reader, it's easier for me to separate the form from the content in some regards, when it comes to comics. So, like, I mean, works like Watchmen and Dark Knight Returns, which, it, it, as a straight white dude who read those when I was 16, they have a place in my comic book, you know, history, and I understand their importance, but believe me, they are very different books at age 36 than they were at 16. <laughs> you know I mean? You know? Yeah. Um, but those books, I think there is a way to separate, um, at least on for some readers, to separate the formal structure of the work visually from the content. Like I find Frank Miller's reactionary politics very off-putting, but I can't not look at a page of Dark Knight Returns and think this is an influential moment in comic book history where I can see its importance visually in terms of structure, 
while ignoring the content in some way. And I think comics are maybe unique as an art form in that regard. Yeah, as an art historian, I don't know if I could do that. Okay. Sure, <laughs> sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, but I think, I mean, that. but again, that is a somewhat privileged way of engaging with comics, maybe, of saying like, oh, look, I can... I can, uh, you know, ignore some of Steve Ditko's more problematic, you know, ethical theories while really enjoying his his artwork. The question is, is should I be doing that? I guess. I think that if you're self aware about it, um, and you're sort of looking at it from both the perspective of like, this is a an important moment in comics, but also why was it an important Mm. moment in comics and what are the consequences of this being an important moment versus some other work by some other creator who is perhaps less (laughs) shitty (laughs) as a human, you know, you know what I mean? Like if you're asking those questions, then I think that's useful. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever heard the question, why was this an important moment Mm. in comics? Because now I'm like, I've got a highlight reel of things that I've always been told are important in comics. And it's a lot of big two stuff. Yeah. And some of it's like event heavy, but things like Dark Knight Returns, I'm like, that's that's more of like like a tonal shift. And all of a sudden everyone started doing that. So I am like thinking about separating out things like, oh, well, you know, DC did Infinite Crisis and that just opened up this whole can of worms for everyone to do these big event books and make a lot of money versus like, oh, um, Frank Miller wrote Dark Knight Returns and then everyone was like, we have to make everything gritty. <laughs> yeah. Which I think is a, is like a, t- a different um, source of relevance in terms of like why we consider these books. And like Watchmen for all its faults, that's when mainstream culture started being like comics not just for children <laughs> right but but i feel like those i feel like those are still focusing on the 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 content of those those works like i feel like everyone took kind of the wrong lesson from those works in that regard where watchmen and what makes watchmen and um dark Knight returns interesting to me is the the visual structure of the comics more than the actual content of the story and i feel like you know, even Alan Moore himself said, "Like, yeah, we'll do gritty comics for like a year or two, and people are going to realize there's no there's no future there, and we'll go back to the way comics used to be." Of course, he was wrong. People are still doing grim and gritty comics, yep. right? But the idea, I for me, I think, is looking at the comics purely as a visual structure and seeing how influential those works were. Like, you don't get um, King and Garrett's uh, Mister Miracle without Watchmen. Like that nine panel grid became a integral part of comics DNA, like after that book, you know, and then uh, I mentioned Will Eisner earlier, and I think Will Eisner's Spirit is a book that visually still stands out, and it's incredibly important. But, you know, again, there's, there's racist stuff in there. So I think being able to separate not even just what the story, the tone of the story, but just purely the visual aspects of it from the content makes it makes the, the medicine go down a little smoother, I don't know, makes it easier to swallow for me in some way. I think that every single writer should be forced to write a run of Crossed, and it will be read at <laughs> their funerals and also sent to their mothers. Sure, <laughs> That's sure. the new rule. <laughs> but like, you know, cause, because we're talking a lot about um, the content 
and we're mm-hmm. and we're i think that the creators you know and how do you separate the work from the artist um that gets harder to talk about when you get into the actual what do you approach it more from the like well who is the artist perspective like we're talking about it more from like what's this content and then we're kind of saying like well here's how the here's how this kind of was indelibly uh kind of imprinted onto this creator as like the thing that they do or in the case of the silver age stuff that's a little bit racist but you know you kind of say well like oh well it's a product of its time or whatever which kind of is absolving the the individual artist but like you know, there are a lot of contemporary examples where it's actually like, no, the artist is kind of a shithead. So, and, and also is putting that shit into their work. Like we, there's a a whole Chelsea Kane situation happening right now as we speak. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And uh, there that becomes the line is uh, blurred to a point where it seems almost impossible to separate that when, you know, in terms of the the Chelsea Kane thing where she's putting criticism of her work in the work itself. So how do you, you can't separate the two at that point, it seems, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sometimes <laughs> the artist insists that you don't separate it, which it's like, okay, buddy, then I guess Wait, we're doing it. I'm sorry. I'm not on Punk Comics Twitter right now. What are you talking about? So as far as I know, um, what happened was the most recent issue of Chelsea Kane's uh, man eaters came out this past week. And, um, Someone posted images on Twitter of tweets that Chelsea Kane had received on Twitter that were critical of the book, were copied verbatim and put in the panel of the comic itself. Oh. And I don't know exactly know the content of the book because I haven't read the comic itself, but that seems like a very weird line to cross when it comes to... The concept of the book is that there's some uh, disease that is being... uh, transmitted to girls when they go through puberty that causes them to become like wear people and kill everybody when they have their period and so uh the government is putting hormone like like a some sort of puberty suppressing hormones in the water or something like that and anyway so it brings up a lot of problems in terms of like gender and uh things like that, um, that are really explicitly associated with um, trans exclusionary radical feminists. And um, so not only is this just kind of conceptually pretty shitty, but it also has um, like right now, as we speak in the real world, the rhetoric of anti-transness is being played out and sort of in in various levels of of uh not just society but also like politically and culturally like these are things real things that are happening right now that are affecting real people's lives so it's not just like a thought exercise and um yeah so having that be explicitly in the book is is a problem yeah because yeah. <laughs> essentially oh. you're the seems like the that the division we were talking about between a creator and the creation or the author and the audience, that becomes sort of shattered at that point. It's not just talking about the fourth wall. You're talking about just that, that that becomes completely separate. I mean, it's no longer there, right? Basically, yeah. It's like, okay, yeah. you know, as as much as I love the whole death of the author, like if the author is 
insisting that much to be included, <laughs> you know, <laughs> yeah, to the point yeah. that they're putting these tweets in in the work itself. It's like, well, then I guess that's where we're doing this. Okay. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which to me raises a, a, a further question of, you know, examples of where that separation seems impossible to make or more difficult to make. Um, you know, you brought up Comics Gate. I think when you have works of art that are exclusively designed with a political message, and that's part of the creative process of it, you can't really separate the artist from the artist at that point. Uh, the example I sort of thought of was I've never read Dave Sim's Cerebus because of that, right? Because I know Dave Sim is, mm-hmm. you know, the work itself, again, is a considered a landmark work. I've read other stuff by him that I've enjoyed visually, but knowing that the content of Cerebus is misogynistic, it's hard for me not to re- see that a reflection on Dave Sims, given things he said publicly, you know, that reinforce that. So Yeah. Or who was that guy... Um, at New York Comic Con a few years ago at the X-Men panel who went off on the Romani in that when someone asked a question. Yeah, it's, uh, Peter David. Yeah. Yeah, it's like, you know, I mean, as, as much as we have these really well-established critical theories explicitly designed for us to separate the art from the artist when we think about artwork, sometimes they... Sometimes they just insist and, you know, yeah, and I, I think that it's a it's perfectly valid as a reader, as an audience member to to say, you know, I do not need to expose myself to this, even if it's canonically, quote unquote, significant, mm-hmm. because, uh, you know, you just at the end of the day, you don't need to. Uh, acknowledge or in- reinforce bad behavior. You don't. And also, you know, if we're going to talk about uh, the death of the author as a concept where your interpretation of the work is as valid as the artist's intent, then if you have a visceral negative reaction to something, there almost is no necessity to really explain that away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Ex- absolutely. I hate this the sort of snobbery that says that you have to engage with with the canon in order to be considered a valid, you know, member of that mm-hmm. space. It's like, no. Mm-mm. So it seems to me that the, the, really the conclusion we're coming to is that, you know, um, acknowledging racist or misogynist content in comics is, is an important first step. Right. Cause I feel like since I've been able to do that, I become a better, a more attentive comic book reader being more critical. It, I think it's only, made me read better comics as an end result, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that it also just like gives you a little bit more of an open mind when it comes to reading things that uh, maybe don't fall within the lines of mainstream canonical work, but it, it, it helps you, like you said, Paul, sort of open your mind a little bit to what should what canon should be considered important and canonical yeah yeah and i also think you know being able to uh identify that problematic or troubling content doesn't necessarily negate the work of art if you still find something of value in it i think obviously there are works of art that maybe um that doesn't work for if something is explicitly racist and that's the intent of it from the author's viewpoint i think as we'd all agree that's a bad work of art right but, but to, yeah. Well, 
acknowledging that it's a privileged position to be able to put those things sure. aside, I think is really sure, the key sure. there. Yeah. Yeah. Being able to separate that or, you know, yeah, exactly. Um, you know, but I don't think that enjoying something that has questionable content, um, I, I don't feel as guilty about that as I used to. You know, I remember when I first started to go back and reading, yeah. I love Stan and Jack's Fantastic Four, but man, Stanley's views on gender roles are <laughs> pretty oh, man. problematic. Oh, yeah. Right? Oh, oh yeah. man. But yeah. there's, you know, but at that point, it's very easy with the division of labor and the separate informant content. It's very easy, very easy for me to glaze over those comments and say, oh, look at Jack's art. It's fantastic. You know, like there's something about, nice about being able to do that with comics that I like and say like, oh, at least I like the art. If I don't like the content of the you know, the writing, you know, people are complicated. Art is complicated. <laughs> like it's messy. It is. And the best you yeah. can do mm-hmm. is to just be really honest about what is and isn't OK. And, and you know, and I also think that acknowledging that, you know, some people are going to have a problem with it and they're not going to be able to put put it aside. And that doesn't make them less um there's this idea, I think, especially on the internet, that if you cannot be objective, then your opinion is invalid. And I think that that's total bullshit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, engaging with any type of artwork is inherently subjective. Yeah. So th- th- there's yeah. no, there is no disengaged way of reading comics, right? You can't be a partial or impartial observer of a work of art. No. And, and just being aware of the various levels of uh, meaning and the different contexts that the artwork will exist in and, and it's placed there, you know, it just, just being self-aware and, and, and letting other people have, you know, their own priorities in terms of how they look at mm-hmm. things. Yeah. Don't be a dick is like the moral of every story that we ever tell on this show. <laughs> it turns out, yeah, that really boils down just to that. So I think, yeah, I mean, um, this has been a really interesting conversation. I think there's still some, um, the can of worms is yet to be emptied in this this regard, but because I think there's plenty of examples we could point to or maybe personal things we could point to, but I think we've kind of scratched the surface in a really interesting way here. And I, um, before you know, we wrap it up, do you have any final thoughts maybe or things to say about this? I've learned a lot today. Thank you. Oh, good, good. <laughs> you both are very smart and know lots of things that I am just, uh, <laughs> I, I feel like I've just been like sitting, listening to this, like, oh, I can, I, I can have a totally new framework. <laughs> oh, I can benefit from master's and near PhD level analysis. Go on. <laughs> we have a lot of student loans, right, right. but, you know, at least we can talk about Derrida. <laughs> yeah, I paid a lot of money to be able to talk about Derrida and Heidegger. So, yeah, at least yeah. I got that. So. I like it. Yep. I like it. Cool. Uh, well, Good yeah. work, team. So, I guess if, if you're listening to this and uh, you uh, have some thoughts on this and you want to let us know, we'd really like to hear about that. Or uh, if uh, maybe some examples of something that uh, might change our opinion, be sure to share them with us. So, I know I, for one, as I've said, being a part of this show and being engaged on comic book Twitter and just getting older and reading more comics, I feel I've become a more critical and self-aware comic book reader. And the nice thing about that is that I find myself questioning my own beliefs and challenging myself just as much as I challenge the work of art. So I think if you're able to do that, then, you know, reading comics isn't a quote unquote waste of time, right? Never. 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 
Thank you. Thank you. So yeah, like I said, uh, if you enjoyed this conversation or want to hear more about it or share your thoughts, be sure to let us know. You can follow us all on Twitter. Uh, you can find Kara at Kara Z Sham, right? Did I get that right? <laughs> Kara S-Z-A-M. There we go. Uh, Tia is at Portrait of Madam X. I am at Ohi Polly. The show is at IRCB Podcast. We post uh, comic book news, artwork we like. We have some sass, some humor, and a bunch of stuff over there. You can subscribe to our Patreon. It's patreon.com slash IRCB podcast. Without your support, this show would not survive. And you can join for access to new and Patreon exclusive episodes and articles with early access to the top of my pile posts and a whole lot more cool stuff. We also have a Goodreads group. It is a lovely community of comic friends and we have tons of weekly threads. Um, including one this week that I'm sure is amazing that I can't get onto because I need to change my <laughs> password. I'm sorry. Oh, no. Oh! <laughs> you can visit our website at ircbpodcast.com, which includes our creator pronunciation guide and merchandise. And please rate us if you, if you like us. Write a review, and it does help us. We're at... 205 episodes why don't we have 205 ratings (laughs) Uh, you can email the show with comments questions jokes your thoughts on this week's episode and more at ircb at destroy the that's ircb at destroy the cyborg but put a dot before the org infinity shred are the best band in the world and they also happen to do the music for our show so thank you to them xander is that unnameable ineffable feeling of a hot shower on a cold day he also happens to edit the show here. Uh, I want to I want to thank uh, Kara and Tia for a fantastic conversation, as always. And I want to thank you, the listener, for tuning in and uh, for Mike letting me uh, sit in his chair, so to speak. Until next time, comics are good, and so are you. <laughs>